And now for today's uh, sermon scripture reading. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Well, good morning once again. I am truly thankful to be here with you today. I'm thankful to be able to open up and to expound from God's Word together. I'm excited just to see just how God will use what we study to draw us closer to Him. Of course, if all we accomplish this morning is that we walk away with more head knowledge, if we will have merely put ourselves in greater danger of becoming arrogant and puffed up. As in all things, we are in need of the Spirit of God to guide us, to instruct us, to cultivate within us a greater love for Christ and for the Gospel. We learn, we study, we apply ourselves to understanding and gaining wisdom because it's by those means that we are able to better understand, know, and love our God. And in all things, work toward the glory of God. So if you join with me once more in prayer, we will ask the Spirit to do just that. Father God, we, we love You. Not perfectly. Not as You deserve, not as You have commanded, Father, but we do love You. We thank You that You judge us not by our own righteousness and merits, but by the merits of Your Son, in whom we have placed our faith. Father, I ask that You would do what You had promised to do, that Your Spirit within us would respond to Your words, to conform us to Christ, to grow within us a greater understanding of redemption, of Your love, of Your holiness, that we would know You and love You more. Father, be glorified by what we do this morning and what we do in every aspect of our lives. Pray these things in confidence in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you are a fan of history, I think you will enjoy these next couple of weeks as we conclude our study of the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew. Thus far, we have taken a pretty close in view of some of the most notable people in that genealogy. This week, we're going to be stepping back just a little bit to look at the history of the kingdoms of Israel, the divided kingdoms of Israel, specifically the kingdom of Judah, from the time of David to the time of the deportation to Babylon. Matthew gives us 14 names for that time period, though we know he was being selective. That is not an exhaustive list of all those kings. There were actually 20 kings between David and Jeconiah, and 21 rulers, if we want to count one murderous queen mother, who tried to wipe out the family line and reigned for six years. Thankfully, she was foiled. Next week, we will take an even larger step back in a, in a bigger overview of history. And we're going to focus then not just on the history of Judah, but on the movement of nations on the earth as God set the stage for the final arrival of His Son, the great King in history. We don't have the same kind of detailed information for the post-exile kings that we enjoy for those that came before. And really, it's only the providential care of God whereby the kingly line was even able to be traced over that time period. Well, as someone who loves history, I really enjoy this kind of stuff. It's amazing for me to be able to step back and see the unfolding of history as nations rise and nations fall 
And then to realize that all of that history has and continues to play out according to the will and the purpose of God. And when I realize that, it it draws me to worship of the great King who steers the hearts of kings of the earth as water in His hands. But as much as we might enjoy the people and the stories in this history, we can't afford to get lost in the details and miss the big picture of what God was doing. That is why we have taken so much time to work through this genealogy. We want us all to be able to see the big picture of what God has done in history. These are not just spiritual concepts, not just a philosophy of things to learn and just have head knowledge. These are actual legitimate things that happen in real time in history with real people and real nations. We want to understand as we look at the broken and drifting world around us today that even now God is at work to bring about the bright future that He has designed. For everyone who by faith is united to His Son, that future is bright. No matter how dark the world may seem right now, no matter how dark the world has seemed over and again throughout the history of mankind, God is in control. And God is bringing all of this to His desired end. In the four weeks we have spent so far looking at the genealogy of Jesus, we have covered the first group of 14 names that Matthew gave us. From Abraham to David. If you look at the list, you'll realize that we're only one-third of the way through the genealogy. And, and no, we're not going to spend four weeks for each group. I think six is, is plenty, uh, especially when you look at commentaries for the genealogy and they give you a, a little couple paragraphs. But I think six was necessary. There are 14 generations also from David to the deportation in Babylon. And then there are 14 more generations from when they come back from exile until the Messiah. Lord willing, over the next two weeks, we're going to cover the rest of this genealogy. One group this week and one group next week. This week we're going to look at the line of kings in Judah during the divided kingdom, as I mentioned before. We're going to see the good, the bad, and the ugly of the royal ancestors of Jesus. And next week, as I said, we'll take a bigger step back and see how God was setting the world stage, setting the world stage for the arrival of His Son on the earth. Well, if you look back, just as a side note, if you look back in the Old Testament, back in First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, or maybe a different translation of, of text. Don't, don't be um, offended or don't be frightened if the names looked a little different. Or if, or if they're just different names altogether. It was actually common in the Old Testament time to have multiple forms of a name. Uh, that, that common feature in Old Testament times is only complicated by the fact that we've been translated from Hebrew into Greek into English. There is little doubt, however which kings Matthew is referring to in his genealogy. I want us to take some time this morning to look at what is recorded about these kings in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. We're going to be focusing on the 14 names that Matthew includes here, but we'll be referencing some of the other kings that he doesn't include, and even, even some of the events for context's sake that are happening in the northern kingdom. Uh, I apologize if you are using the sermon notes. This historical brief, a part of the sermon, won't be included in there. I did not have room to try and summarize all of these facts. Uh, just go and read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and you'll get everything you need. Um, I'll let you know when, when I'm getting back to where it'll be on those notes. Well, as we, we talked about last week, the... the um, unified kingdom of David, the unified kingdom of Israel set up by David, would only stand for two generations. Remember, we made a, we made a big deal last week talking about how this, this um, golden age for Israel, this golden age for the people of God lasted two generations. And even in those two generations, there was chaos, there was bloodshed, there was sin. But the prosperity and influence of the kingdom 
under David and Solomon would not be equaled by either of the lesser kingdoms that would follow when the kingdom divided. It is clear as you look through the kings of the Old Testament of the divided kingdom that all the kings of Judah would be judged by David. David will be the benchmark. And I think if you remember what, from our discussion last week, it makes sense that David is the benchmark by which all the kings that followed him would be judged. Did they follow after David or did they follow after the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel? Did they follow after David or did they follow after the evil and pagan nations that God had driven out from their midst? Did they follow David or did they follow in the sins of their fathers? Those are the kind of questions that are answered regularly as we look at these kings. Well, after David, Solomon ruled. He was granted great wisdom by God. If you remember, he was asked, he, he was given the opportunity to ask for one thing, and he asked for wisdom instead of wealth, and God gave him both. For most of his life, Solomon ruled well. Yet, late in his life, his wisdom failed him. We read in 1 Kings 11, 4-6, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Well, the results of, of Solomon's failure in turning after idolatry were made clear to him, and they just contributed to the devastating legacy of the house of David. We read about that in 1 Kings 11, 11 through 13. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since you, this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will, do, will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Remember that, that concept, that, that last phrase, that for the sake of David my servant. That will be a regular theme of, of seeing God's preservation. Well, Solomon, or Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he did not inherit his father's wisdom, though he did inherit his father's pension for evil. He turned away from the counsel of, of those elder statesmen that had, that had advised his father, and instead he went over to those, those young those men, those th men who were lacked wisdom, experience, understanding. And because of their advice, he overestimated his strength and his authority. And he sought to really to bear down on the northern tribes, to put a heavy burden on their shoulders, to break them into submission. Not surprisingly, for a young king who didn't have time to really establish his authority in a kingdom that was already in some turmoil, the northern tribes turned against him. They left. They selected their own king who was not of the house of David. Under the rule of Rehoboam, Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. They built idols and they set up high places for worship. Because of his foolishness, and because of the sins of his fathers, the kingdom fractured, and there was now only one tribe left to follow the house of David. The northern kingdom of Israel would never know a righteous king. And Judah, as we will see, only survived because of the faithfulness of God. Because of the promise that he had made to David, because of the Messiah who was to come, from his line. After Rehoboam's death, his son Abijah, or Abijam, reigned for three years in Jerusalem, and he walked in all the sins of his father before him. Following him, we find the first in the list of kings of Judah that followed the faithfulness of David rather than turning greater to the sins. Asaph, as, as Matthew recounts, or, or Asa, reigned for 41 years in Jerusalem. And according to 1 Kings 15, 11-13, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes of the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. He also removed 
Ma'aka, his, mo- his mother, from being queen mother, because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. Just for a little bit of a more world context or context within the biblical history, it was near the end of the reign of Asaph that Ahab began to be king in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's also around this time where Elijah was, was a prophet of God, primarily to that northern kingdom, interacting in that area in this time. Asaph's son Jehoshaphat reigned after his father for 25 years. It's recorded in 1 Kings 22, 43, and 44 that he walked in all the ways of his father, Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from doing it, what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet the high places were not taken away. Keep that phrase in mind. And the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. While he wasn't able to abolish false worship in the land, it is recorded in 2 Chronicles that Jehoshaphat went out among the people of his kingdom and worked to bring them back to God, to bring them back to faithfulness. The faithfulness of Jehoshaphat and Asaph before him wouldn't continue any longer. Joram, or Jehoram, reigned for the next eight years. 2 Kings 8, 8, 18 and 19 tell us this, that he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. Notice that even in the midst of this repeated failure of Judah, God was faithful. Well, after Joram, there are three kings that Matthew leaves out of his genealogy. Ahaziah followed in the ways of Ahab. Remember, Ahab led his people into great idolatry and rebellion, to Baal. When he was killed, his mother, Athaliah, when I mentioned before, seized power for six years by attempting to wipe out the entire royal line. Yet, God preserved the royal line, and the son of the fallen king was hidden and rescued. That son, Joash, would bring some revival back to the people because he had been raised under the tutelage of a faithful priest, Jehoiada. Though, again, false worship was allowed to continue in the land. In the end, after Jehoiada died, Joash turned from God and towards the idol of the nations. He, he once more gave in to the pressure of the people to follow the nations. He was followed by Amaziah, who himself followed the true God, yet again allowed the people to continue in their high places. Following him, we can pick up once again where Matthew, in his record, Uzziah, or Azariah, reigned in Jerusalem for 52 years. Again, he did right in the sight of the Lord, yet the high places were not taken away. I mentioned before, to keep that phrase in mind, the high places. It is likely that this phrase is making a distinction between outright paganism and the wrong worship of the true God. See, there are, there are two different distinctive ways to participate in false worship. One is just to cast the Lord God aside altogether and go serve other gods, to serve Baal or Molech or the Asherah. That was one way, and many of the kings of Israel, we'll see, did that. They, they went after the sins of their fathers, after the sins of the northern kingdom. They went after the Baals and the Asherah. But others even though they followed God themselves, didn't take down the high places. And that's the other way of false worship. It's worshiping God in ways other than He has commanded. Actually, literally worshiping God in ways that He has forbidden. That's more of the line of what Israel did when they went into the wilderness. As as the golden calf was crafted and set before them, it, it was not said, here is a brand new God, or here is a God of Egypt. No, here is the God who rescued you from Egypt. So it wasn't an outright attempt to worship a different God, but they wanted to worship the true God according to their own desires. 
according to what was familiar to them and familiar to the people that they had just left. Throughout the history of Judah, the really bad kings led the people into the worship of false gods. While the pretty decent kings followed God themselves, but didn't get too worked up about how all the people worshipped God. They allowed the people to do it and approach God in a way that seemed right to them, in a way that was comfortable and satisfying to them, in a way that uh, just conveniently happened to look a lot like the way the pagans worshipped their false gods. And then you had the rarest of all types of king. You had those that followed God and charged everyone else to bow to God only as He has required in His Word. And by the mercy of God, Judah had a few of those as well. Well, after Uzziah, Jotham reigned for 16 years. Like his father, he followed after God individually, yet he allowed the people to continue to worship at the high places and make sacrifices contrary to what God had commanded. Well, I mentioned before that there were, there were a handful of kings that were pretty much okay and then only a couple that were really good. Well, there was a bunch of kings that were bad, but there were a couple that were absolutely horrific. After Jotham, his son Ahaz would prove to be one of those kings, and he brought horrors into the land of Judah. Ahaz modeled himself after the ways of the kings of Israel. He promoted the worship of false gods in the land. He even offered his own son in fire as a sacrifice to Molech. He brought such depravity into the kingdom of Judah that God sent the king of Assyria in as a rebuke against him, and the king of Assyria captured a great number of people and resources and wealth out of Judah. The wickedness of Ahaz was so great that even after he faced the open rebuke of God, he didn't turn in repentance of what he had done. He hardened himself. And instead of turning back to the one true God, he turned to the gods of Damascus, the gods of Assyria, who had just defeated, he, he believed had just defeated him. He believed them to be the greater gods because they had defeated him. Well, by the mercy of God, after that very wicked king, Judah was given a very good king, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of only three kings in the, during the divided kingdom that was mentioned that he worshipped after God and followed after God in the way of David before him. Hezekiah removed idols in the high places. He destroyed the relics of Israel's past, Israel had taken that golden serpent that Moses had crafted. They had started worshiping that as an idol. So he destroyed that. He destroyed other relics. He destroyed anything that was causing the people or allowing them to worship in illegitimate ways. He worked to restore the temple that had been left in disorder. It's not hard to imagine how quickly that temple would have fallen into disorder. The amount of upkeep that would have been required to keep that pristine with the number of kings that were turning to anything other than the true God. It was during the rule of Hezekiah that the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians and her people carried off into captivity. Judah was, in contrast, rescued by God from Assyria, who was threatening to conquer Judah at that time as well. Well, sometime later, after Hezekiah had been miraculously healed when he had been on the point of death, and when God told him he had granted him 15 more years of life, Hezekiah was told by Isaiah that the wealth and the strength of Judah would be carried off by Babylon far away. And this wouldn't happen in his lifetime, but it would happen in the lifetime of his descendants. Well, following Hezekiah was another of the truly monstrous kings of Judah, Manasseh. And Manasseh reigned for 55 years. Just a bit of his evil is recorded for us in 2 Kings 21, 2-6. There it says, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, 
according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he built the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal, and he made Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering. And he used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. See, it should not be a surprise as we look forward and we see the destruction of the city. The power and influence of the people wiped out as the people were carried away from their land. When we read accounts of the kings of Judah, it should not surprise us. It should only surprise us that God was as patient as He was. Later on is recorded that Manasseh led the people into even greater evil than the nations that were there before Israel had done. Interestingly, and as a reminder that nobody is outside the reach of our God, Manasseh repented of his evil in his old age. Manasseh actually made effort to undo the evil that he had done. Though with all those years, his influence was not diminished of the evil that he had done. Amos, his son, followed closely in his father's former footsteps in the evil of his father. Following Amos, we have the other truly good king of Judah, Josiah. Josiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all of the ways of David. During his reign, he worked to restore the temple. And while the priests were going through the temple, they discovered a book of the law that had been lost. A book of the law that, that at this, it had been so long since anybody had been truly faithful in this way that they had forgotten about. And they brought the book of the law out to him and it was read to him. And he tore his clothes and he grieved for how far his nation had fallen from obedience. He determined that he would bring the nation back to God. His love for God's law is a great reminder of the heart of David who regularly meditated singing how much he loved God's law. And it also is a reminder or, or pointing forward to the king who would one day come from his line. Under Josiah, the people once again celebrated the Passover, something that was commanded that they never give up celebrating, and yet they had gone by the wayside. Think of the negligence of that. The Passover, which was meant to remind Israel year after year that God had miraculously redeemed them from slavery and bondage. Something that was meant to be a continual reminder to keep them faithful. And they let that go aside. There's no wonder that they fell so far. Josiah would be the last righteous king that we have recorded until the king who is righteousness would come into his kingdom. After God had shown mercy to Judah for 31 years of Josiah's reign, the kingdom would only know discord and decay until it was ultimately overthrown and the people were taken into captivity. After him, Jehoaz lasted only three months before Pharaoh Necho came and took him as a prisoner and put Jehoiakim on the throne in his place. Jehoiakim lasted for 11 years, but part of that time involved having bowing the knee to Babylon and paying tribute. Well, eventually he decided to rebel, and that would seal the kingdom's fate. After him, Jeconiah, once again in Matthew's genealogy list, Jeconiah only reigned three months in Jerusalem, before Babylon came in force. He did what seems to have been a very prudent move. 
he gave himself up as a prisoner to the king of Babylon. And at that time, Babylon carried the greatest of the wealth of the kingdom and the best and the brightest and the wealthiest of its people. Jeconiah eventually was released from prison in Babylon and was given a place of honor among a future king of Babylon's servants. His uncle, Zedekiah, who was placed as king in Jerusalem after after Jeconiah was captured, did not fare so well. Eventually, that Jeconiah decided that once again he would rebel against Babylon. Some of these men had had an odd habit of thinking that they could claim faithfulness of God to get them out of things when they had not been faithful. And in this case, Zedekiah attempted to push back against Babylon. And at that point, Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. His sons were slaughtered in front of his eyes. And then after watching the agony of his sons being slaughtered before him, they gouged out his eyes so that would be the last thing he would ever see. And after this time, only the poorest of the poor were left in Jerusalem and in Judah. Out of the 19 kings who would rule in Judah after the division of the kingdom, only eight walked in obedience to the Lord. Of these eight, only three were able to meet the benchmark of David. And only two were able to completely cleanse not just their own house, but their kingdom from the idols and the pagan places of worship. Hezekiah, even though he was the son of the wicked king Ahaz, was a righteous king at a time when Judah needed one very badly. Josiah also followed closely behind a very perverse king. When Josiah came to power, he was only 12 years old. Yet he loved the Lord, and he was diligent to rid Judah of all idolatry and pagan worship. But even with all those years of Josiah being so faithful in Jerusalem, even with all the reforms that he enacted in that country, it would only be a few generations before God would bring judgment on Judah before he would carry them off into captivity in Babylon. Like the northern kingdom of Israel before, the people of Judah had rejected their God. Well, if you are wanting to use those sermon notes, this is about where we'll get back into covering what is on there. Which might make you afraid that the sermon notes are just starting at this point of my sermon. The promise that was made to David and to his house concerning his kingdom would stand forever. This promise made to David was not made to David on the condition of David's faithfulness or the condition of the faithfulness of David's descendants. It was made on the faithfulness of God. And praise God for that. David was the standard by which all these future kings would be judged, but yet, as we discussed last week, David was himself far from a perfect king. The righteousness of David, imperfect as it was, obtained, was obtained by only three kings after him. According to the Mosaic Covenant, the blessings of God for the nation of Israel were conditional on the faithful obedience to the law. God gave them a standard, and then He told them how He would bless them if they lived up to that standard, and how He would punish them if they fell short. This was a covenant agreement made between God and the nation of Israel. In an age where we tend to want to only think of the mercy of God, we need to remember that the judgment that was given out on Judah and on the northern kingdom of Israel, that judgment and destruction was promised to the people if they failed to follow the commandments of the Lord, their God. 
And as mentioned before, the, tr- the wonder of that is not that they were destroyed. The wonder is that God gave them so long to remain in their rebellion. When the northern tribes of Israel refused the rule of Rehoboam, that's Solomon's son, they believed they were simply throwing off an unjust monarch. They didn't want to recognize the authority of the house of David to rule over them. They desired to have a ruler for themselves. But what they did not realize or fully appreciate was that in throwing off the rule of the house of David, they were removing themselves from the promised faithfulness that God had made to David and the favor of the Lord that came with it. In breaking themselves away from Judah, they separated themselves and alienated themselves from the ark, from the the true worship of God in the temple. The priests of the house of Levi, who had no land of their own, went with Judah to where they might minister before the Lord as they had been commanded. Israel was left to name for herself a new king, apart from the promise of God, and then to name for herself new priests outside of God's command. In declaring their freedom, the northern tribes brought doom upon themselves. All too often we see that pattern play out in our lives, or the lives of those around us, or the lives of nations. Declaring our independence, we bring doom on our heads. Well, let's look briefly about how Israel, the northern kingdom, fared after it separated from Israel or from Judah. The first king of Israel, Jeroboam, began his rule in a very familiar way. He made two golden calves and presented them for the people in two cities so that they might worship God. His first act as king was to establish improper worship. Forbidden worship. There was not a single righteous king among all of those that ruled in Samaria. Not one did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Each and every one of them led the people into idolatry, into evil. We read in Hosea about the condition of Israel as the Lord sent prophets to warn the kingdom and to bring them to repentance. In Hosea 8, 12, and 13, this were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. Even though God had made his law abundantly clear to this people, even though he had sent prophets to them to remind them, to call them back. The law of God was an alien thing to them. Sure, they still maintained some of the ritual, some of the formality of what looked kind of like what God had called them to do. Yet God was not pleased by their sacrifices. And God would bring judgment on them and once again make them as they were in Egypt strangers and captives in a foreign land. The northern kingdom was scattered and would be simply come to be known as the lost tribes of Israel. Well, what was different in Judah? Why did Judah not only last longer as a kingdom, but see a number of revivals and reforms under the kings that did right in the sight of the Lord? Well, the answer is not ultimately that they were just so much more righteous and so much better men. Remember, it was the sin of the kings in Judah, of the line of David, that caused the kingdom to fracture to begin with, that caused, even back to David, the promise of bloodshed to be in his house for the remainder of its days. We have looked at numerous examples of the kings of Judah being just as wicked as any of the kings in Israel. One even surpassing the wickedness of the Canaanites before them as though to invent new ways of offending God. No, it was not their righteousness that maintained that kingdom. 
What made the difference in Judah was the promise that God had made to David. The promise that He had made to Abraham and to Jacob. It was the purpose of God that He had willed to bring about through Israel, through Judah, David's line, for His chosen Messiah. God would have a people. God would bless all the nations of the earth through that people. God would establish a kingdom without end through that people. God was working through the house of David to bring about the fulfillment of His promises to His eternal purpose. To bring about the redemption of mankind through the descendant of David, the son of Abraham. Ultimately, however, the kingdom of Judah would fall in much the same way as the kingdom of Israel. And it did appear at that moment as though the promises of God had failed. If you want to get a taste of the emotional anguish that followed the fall of Jerusalem, read the book of Lamentations and see how Jeremiah experienced its tragic end. Even so, God was faithful to His promise, both in the judgment that He brought on the people for their wickedness, and the promise that He had made through the descendants of Abraham and the house of David. Next week, we're going to look a little bit more about how the stage was set, both within Israel and Judah and within the nations to be able to bring about this purposed end of the bringing about of the Messiah. What becomes obvious in the history of the Old Testament is that the people of Israel were continually suffering because of the failure of its leaders. God had given His people many great and faithful leaders. He had given them prophets to bring His Word, priests to lead them in right worship, and kings to judge them. Even though there were some righteous prophets, priests, and kings, in the day of Jeremiah, the people had seen many abuses in these offices. Many prophets, priests, and kings that rather than turning the people toward God, were leading them away from God. Jeremiah prophesied in the final years of Jerusalem. We read in Jeremiah 6, 13-15 of the abuses of the leaders. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed this abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I will punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Jeremiah lived in a time when the strength of Judah was failing. He prophesied during and after the reign of the king of Josiah. He witnessed a good king as well as a number of wicked kings. Even under the righteous leadership of Josiah, the religious leaders of Jerusalem and the false prophets of the day continued to remain wicked and to try and speak against what the king was doing. They used every opportunity for their own gain. They told the people that there was peace between them and God, that there was peace between them and Babylon, yet there was no peace to be found in either place. God was going to judge the people, and He was going to use Babylon to do it. The people of God had been led astray by many of their prophets, their priests, and their kings. Yet, one was coming who would fulfill all of these three offices at once. One was coming who would bring about the promise, the purposes of the full revelation of God. One was coming who would be the Word of God become flesh. One was coming who would serve as a priest to the Most High God, not according to the Levitical priesthood, but according to Melchizedek. A priesthood that is without end before God. He would sit at the right hand of God, continually making intercession on behalf of the redeemed. 
He would provide a sacrifice that needed no repeating. One that would once for all cover the sins of everyone who would believe in Him. He would be of the house of David. He would rule forever in perfect righteousness, not even conceived of or approached by David. And He would gather to Himself all that the Father had given Him, being a blessing to all the nations of the earth. The greatest prophet to ever live would not be the kind of prophet that Israel had ever seen before. The greatest priest would not be a son of Levi. The greatest king who will ever rule over the earth would not simply measure up to David. He would measure up instead to the Lord Most High. He would be the very Son of God. Christ came to fulfill the offices of prophet, priest, and king. Yet not as the world had known, and certainly not with how the people were expecting for the Messiah. They looked for the descendant of David to be a mighty warrior who would overthrow the foreign oppression and usher in a, a, a temporal kingdom, something on this earth, in that country, on that soil that was lost so long ago. What God would give them instead was a mighty Savior who by His death would restore mankind to God. That relationship that had been broken ever since Adam sinned in the garden. The work of, that Christ came to accomplish was not merely the redemption of a piece of land, of an imperfect and finite kingdom. He came to redeem a great multitude of every tribe, tongue, and nation. He came to redeem a people for Himself. Not ultimately from the bonds of Rome, but from the bonds of death, from the wrath of God that they were due because of their sin. To set up a kingdom that was not simply over Jerusalem and Israel, but whose authority and dominion would cover all. I pray that we do not undervalue the significance of God sending His Son to this earth. I pray that we do not sell short the promises that are fulfilled in Christ. Promises that are fulfilled in Christ are not as trivial as an earthly kingdom as the Jews were expecting. He came to do so much more than just provide for the temporal needs of one nation. How do we trivialize the salvation He offers? How do we do that? How do we present it as something that is just meant to make us happy for the moment? Or that, that is meant to make us prosper? How do we do that? How, do, how will we so often forget that this little baby born in humble surroundings in Bethlehem was born to die so that we might live? How dare we trivialize these things? Jesus came to earth. The Son of God came to this earth to claim a people for Himself that would for all eternity recognize what He had done for them. A people that would, without ceasing, worship and praise His name always, forever, without end, to the glory of His Father. May we even now recognize what He did and not cheapen His work and His sacrifice. Beloved, we do not show devotion to Christ through grand displays, but by a life continually growing in obedience to Christ. We do not display the worth of Christ and the magnitude of His worth with banners or lights, but with a changed life that is devoted to Him. I pray that we do not think it is enough that we have a holiday just in December to remember the birth of Christ, the importance of the entrance of the Son of God onto this earth, but that we would live our lives to continually display His power, His worth, the efficacy of what He has done. And remember that it is to the birth of Christ that all of this history has been building. All this history that we've been covering in the genealogy of Christ isn't just an interesting story. isn't just to understand what the people were experiencing. It's building toward the arrival of the Son of God on this earth. That moment of infinite importance 
that Matthew is preparing us for. The birth of Christ is not just for Christmas. It is a hinge point in all of history. And we will get there in our study, Lord willing, in just a couple of weeks. If you join me in prayer. Father, the magnitude of what you have done in your Son, so easily you can just take the words away from us as we don't know how to express all that it means. Father, forbid that we would look on at the history of your people in, in judgment and somehow think that we would be the ones who would be counted among the righteous. Father, when we, when we see the, the, the sin and the evil that's been committed by others and the destruction by judgment that you bring, let us not look in judgment as though we wouldn't have been right there with them. But remind us that it's only by your grace that we are saved. And that same long-suffering, loving-kindness that you displayed to Judah as the king after king went after the pagan gods and rejected you, that same loving-kindness and mercy and patience you have shown us. That you have forgiven us much in your Son. And even now, because of your steadfast loving kindness, when we again and again fail, you do not reject us. But you're always ready to forgive, to cleanse us and restore us. Father, draw us to Christ. Draw us in praise and worship and wonder. For the glory of your name. Amen.